0: Bond yields have trended steadily downward since the end of the financial crisis in 2008-2009, even as the economy has recovered. So if nothing else, that should tell you that anyone who thinks they can forecast interest rates is delusional. Welcome to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bortolotti and it's great to be back with you for another episode. Now this time around we have a little different format for you. During the last few months I've received a ton of emails and blog comments about bonds and their role in a diversified portfolio. A lot of investors seem very confused about how bond ETFs work, how they're affected by changes in interest rates, whether investors can use alternatives to bonds and even whether it's okay to abandon them altogether. So I thought I would devote a whole episode of the podcast to simply answering common questions about bonds and hopefully clear up some of that confusion. Now a warning before we jump in here, bonds can be difficult to understand, especially the math around how they're priced and how their returns are calculated. Now I've tried to simplify these ideas as much as possible in the podcast, but you might need to listen to this episode more than once so it really sinks in. Many of the concepts are also going to benefit from real-world examples, so I'm going to follow up the podcast with a series of blog posts that explain some of these main points in detail, including some of the math and helpful links. So over the next little while, visit my site at canadiancouchpotato.com for more. The site already has dozens of other articles on bonds and ETFs, so you can dig into the archives and check out those as well. All right, so let's get into the heavy stuff. And joining me to work through all these questions is my friend and colleague, Amanda DL. So Amanda, what is first on our list?
1: Well, we may as well start with the one that stumps so many investors. Why do bond prices fall when interest rates rise?
0: All right, one of the most fundamental concepts for bond investors to understand is that when interest rates rise, bond prices fall, and vice versa. Bonds rise in value when interest rates decline. Now, this is confusing for many people, right? We're told to stay away from bonds because rates might rise, but shouldn't higher interest rates be a good thing for bond investors? I mean, you never hear people say that you should avoid stocks because their dividends might rise. So what gives here? Well, the math can get complicated, but I'm going to try to explain the main idea using a simplified example. So let's say that Daryl buys a newly issued five-year bond with a face value of $1,000 and an interest rate, or a coupon as it's called, of 3%, and that this is the prevailing rate for five-year bonds with similar risk. So that bond will pay Daryl $30 in interest each year for the next five years. Now let's also assume that hours after Daryl buys his bonds, interest rates rise sharply. So now his brother Larry is able to buy a five-year bond with similar risk, but this one has a 4% coupon. So Larry's bond will pay him $40 in annual interest for every $1,000 in face value. Okay, so now let's imagine that Lisa is looking to buy a bond for her portfolio, and she approaches both Daryl and Larry about making a purchase. Now remember, the two brothers both own bonds with the same risk, and the same maturity date five years from now, the only difference is that Daryl's bond has a 3% coupon while Larry's bond pays 4%. So which one should Lisa buy? Well, obviously if both bonds had the same price, Lisa would choose Larry's bond because it pays more interest. But although Daryl's bond pays less than the prevailing rate, it's still not worthless. Right, I mean, that 3% coupon and its $30 annual interest is still worth something, even if you can buy similar bonds that yield 4%. So this is where we turn to the elegant mathematics of bond pricing. The value of Daryl's bond is going to fall just enough so that its $30 in annual interest works out to a 4% yield over the next five years. Now, you're not going to be able to do this math in your head, but there's lots of online calculators that will do it for you. And it turns out that the value of Daryl's bond would fall from about $1,000 to about $950. So that's the price at which Daryl's bond would deliver the same return as Larry's over the full five years to maturity. So let's break this down a little bit further to help you understand. Okay, Lisa could buy Larry's bond for $1,000 and receive $40 in annual interest for five years. That would be a total of $200 in interest. And at maturity, she would get the $1,000 face value of the bond returned to her. Or on the other hand, she could buy Daryl's bond for $950. Now, she would receive just $30 in annual interest for five years for a total of $150. And remember, that's $50 less interest than Larry's bond paid. But at maturity, Lisa would receive the full $1,000 face value of the bond, even though she only paid $950 for it. So that's an additional profit of $50 and that fully offsets the lower amount of interest that she was paid. Now again, I've simplified the math here, but I hope the main idea is clear. When interest rates rise, existing bonds with lower coupons must be worth less because investors can buy newer bonds with higher coupons. So the older bonds decline in price and that effectively makes them and the current bonds equivalent to investors. Now, of course, the opposite is true too. If interest rates fall, older bonds with higher coupons are gonna be more valuable. So if we continue our example above, let's say rates had fallen from 3% to 2% immediately after Daryl bought his five-year bond. Its value then would have shot up from $1,000 to about $1,050. So had Lisa purchased that bond, she would have received an additional $10 in interest compared with prevailing rates, or an extra $50 over the full five years, but then she would have eventually suffered a $50 loss when the bond matured because she would have received the $1,000 face value, and remember, she paid $1,050 for the bond five years earlier. So overall, whether she bought a 2% bond at face value or a 3% bond for more than face value, her overall return over five years would be the same. Now if you're a couch potato investor, you're probably not buying individual bonds. You're more likely to buy index funds or ETFs that hold hundreds of bonds. But the principle is still the same. When interest rates rise, the value of your bond holding will fall, at least in the short term. But the interest payments you receive every month likely won't get any lower. And over time, at least assuming rates don't change again, they will likely even go up as older bonds mature and newer ones are purchased with these new higher coupons. And of course, when interest rates rise, every new dollar that you put into a bond fund will have a higher expected return than in the past, because now you're paying less for every dollar of interest. So that's why investors who are still many years from retirement should actually welcome a modest increase in interest rates. It would cause some short term pain, but it would also mean higher bond returns over the long term.
1: Thanks, Dan. Next up is a question from a listener named Andrew, and he writes. I have been investing using your couch potato strategy for just over three years now. However, does it still make sense to invest in bonds when they are continually losing money?
0: This is a very common question, and it's easy to see why investors are so confused. My guess is that Andrew thinks bonds have been continually losing money because the market value of his bond ETF has been ticking down gradually over the last few years. But I bet he would be surprised to hear that broad market bonds, like those I recommended in my model portfolios, have actually delivered returns of about 4% annually over the three years ending March 31st. So what is going on here? As we just discussed, bond prices rise when interest rates fall. You'll remember that in our example, if prevailing rates decline from 3% to 2%, you might see an existing five-year bond with a face value of $1,000 begin trading for $1,050. Now, a bond whose current price is higher than its face value is called a premium bond. Now, you'll remember that although an investor is justified in paying more for a premium bond because the bonds pay more interest than newer ones, Premium bonds will eventually mature at face value. And that five-year bond that might be worth $1,050 today, by the time it matures and all of its interest payments have been made, it will only be worth $1,000 if that was the face value. So if you held this bond in your brokerage account, and if we assume that interest rates don't change along the way, you would see its value gradually tick down from $1,050 to $1,000. And not surprisingly, you would probably think you're losing money on this investment. But actually you're not, because it's true that you lost $50 on the purchase price, but the bond paid you 3% interest for five years. So you received $150 in interest along the way. So overall, you paid $1,050 for the bond, and by the time it matured, you had a total of $1,150, including the interest. That's a significantly positive return. But the problem is the list of holdings on your brokerage statement doesn't factor in all those interest payments. It only shows the decline from $1,050 to $1,000. You with me so far? Okay, so let's look at how this idea affects the ETFs in your portfolio. Interest rates have been trending down for many years now, which means that the vast majority of bonds these days are trading at a premium. That's higher than their face value. Now, these bonds were issued when rates were higher, so many of them pay as much as 3% or 4% or more, even though prevailing rates are much lower than that today. So as these bonds approach maturity, they will gradually fall in value. Now, a traditional bond ETF might hold hundreds of these premium bonds, so they too will see their share prices decline gradually Uh, over the years and they have done so over the last few years. But again, investors who had these ETFs in their portfolios have not lost money because the decline in the share price has been more than offset by the interest payments in the ETFs during that same period. So I think a specific example will help. So let's use the BMO aggregate bond ETF. The ticker symbol is ZAG. This is the bond fund in my model portfolios. Now back on March 31st, 2015, so just over two years ago, this ETF was trading at $16.37 a share. Two years later on March 31st, 2017, its price had fallen to $15.70. So that's a decline of 67 cents per share or about 4%. So if you bought this ETF two years ago, your brokerage statement is going to show a 4% loss and you, not surprisingly, will probably think you've lost money. But over those two years, the ETF paid about $0.93 per share in interest, which more than offset that $0.67 loss. So over the two years, the fund actually delivered a total return of just under 1% annually. Now, that's hardly a cause for celebration, but it's also not a 4% loss, so you didn't lose any money. If you want to get a more accurate sense of how bonds have performed in the recent past, rather than looking at brokerage statements, I would suggest that you visit the web page for whatever bond ETF or index fund you happen to own, because the website reports past performance and it always uses what's called the total return, which factors in both the price change and all of the interest payments received over the period. So it gives you a much more accurate sense of how your bond fund performed.
1: All right, here's another one you probably hear all the time, Dan. Since we know interest rates are going to go up, doesn't it make sense to just avoid bonds altogether until their yields are higher?
0: Yes, this is definitely one I get frequently. In fact, I feel like I've been hearing it since 2009. And it's true that interest rates are near their historical lows. I mean, as of mid-April, a 10-year Government of Canada bond was yielding just over 1.5%. And a broad-based bond index funds, like the ones I recommend in my model portfolios, yield about 2%. Now, it's hard to get very excited about that, especially when equity returns have been so strong for the last few years. And what's more, it's pretty much impossible to listen to the financial news without hearing some guru warn that interest rates have nowhere to go but up. And since rising interest rates will cause the value of bonds to fall... Why not just stay out of bonds until yields are higher and then buy them when they're cheap? So the first issue to discuss here is this idea that interest rates are highly likely to go up in the near future. I really don't think we can take people seriously anymore if they continue to beat this drum. We have been hearing this argument almost constantly for seven or eight years now, and it has been spectacularly wrong. Bond yields have trended steadily downward since the end of the financial crisis in 2008-2009 even as the economy has recovered. So if nothing else, that should tell you that anyone who thinks they can forecast interest rates is delusional. So if you're building a portfolio based on the idea that interest rates are certainly going to rise, you're making a very important decision based on nothing but guesswork. Rates could rise but they also could fall further or they could stay more or less the same for many years. No one has any idea if, when or how much rates will move in the foreseeable future. So if we accept the premise that interest rate forecasts have no value, then we can think about bonds in a different way, Why hold bonds in your portfolio when they're yielding barely 2%? Well, the answer is pretty simple because most investors just don't have the stomach to hold an all equity portfolio. And by adding bonds to your portfolio, you make it less volatile and less likely to suffer large losses during a market downturn, right? By their nature, bonds are just a lot less volatile than stocks. I mean, a traditional bond index fund is not likely to lose more than 5 or 6% even in a very bad year, whereas that's a bad day for stocks. So adding 30% or 40% bonds or whatever that number might be is going to lead to a smoother ride compared with a portfolio of all equities. And moreover, when stock markets fall sharply, and we know they will at some point, interest rates usually go down, which causes bonds to go up in value and reduces the losses in your portfolio. Now, I can already hear some younger listeners pushing back against this advice and arguing that because they have so many years to recover from a market downturn, they don't need to worry about short term losses. And I also frequently hear young investors say they're very comfortable with risk and they believe they can manage an all-equity portfolio. And maybe that is true, but let's remember that we have been enjoying a bull market for about eight years now. And many investors have simply never experienced a true market crash yet, right? So unless you've lived through the 2008-2009 crisis when an all-equity portfolio would have been cut in half in six months – or if you've lived through the dot-com bust when an equity portfolio saw three straight years of negative returns from 2000 to 2002. If you haven't lived through one of these crashes, I really don't think you know what your risk tolerance is, so don't be so sure that you can get by without any bonds in your portfolio. Now at the other end of the demographic spectrum, if you're a retiree, you might also be depressed about low interest rates and reluctant to invest in bonds. You might reasonably argue that you have lived through many market crashes during your lifetime and so you can comfortably handle an all equity portfolio. And again, that might be true, but I would like to encourage you to rethink this idea as well, First of all, if you were drawing down your portfolio in retirement, you may no longer have the time nor the earning power to recover from a major market crash the way you might have when you were working. So you need some bonds in your portfolio in order to risk reduce the risk of large losses that you can't recover from. And second of all, if you've been a good saver and, a spe- and your spending is modest, you probably don't really need to take that much risk with your retirement savings. I think you'll find that most people can meet their retirement income goals with a balanced portfolio that generates a return somewhere between 3% and 5% over the long term, and you don't need an all-equity portfolio to achieve that. So the bottom line is, interest rates are low and if they rise, bond index funds will lose value, but for most investors they should still be a permanent part of your portfolio.
1: Okay, that makes sense. But what about holding cash or GICs as an alternative to bonds?
0: Yeah, I've spent a lot of time arguing that most investors cannot or don't need to hold a portfolio of 100% stocks and that they should reduce this risk by holding bonds as well. But bonds aren't the only way to lower the volatility of a portfolio. You could accomplish the same goal by holding part of your portfolio in cash or GICs. These are both reasonable alternatives, although each option does have its pros and cons. So let's start with the idea of using cash as a substitute for bonds. These days, a broad-based bond index fund yields about 2%, while a short-term bond ETF might offer about 1.2%. Meanwhile, a quick online search for the best rates on savings accounts turns up one at 2% and a few more at one75 and 1.95%. So you might ask, why hold a bond ETF when you can get a similar yield from cash with zero volatility and even deposit insurance from the federal government? So there certainly are situations where it does make sense to use a high interest savings account rather than a bond fund. Uh, If you're putting money aside for a short or medium-term goal like a down payment on a home or some other major purchase, then cash is definitely the most appropriate vehicle. But if you're investing for the long term, bonds really do add more diversification to the portfolio. Remember that the main reason to hold bonds is to provide a safety net when markets crash. So when stocks plummet and the economy is in recession, interest rates typically fall, which drives bond prices up. And that boost can offset at least some of the losses that you experience on the equity side of the portfolio. Holding cash during a stock market correction will help you reduce your overall losses, but your savings account's not going to go up and it's not going to offer any off- offsetting benefit. Uh, In fact, if a recession follows and interest rates go down, then savings uh, accounts will actually just pay you less going forward because the rates on those will will fall as well. So cash can definitely lower the risk of an all equity portfolio. And if you're able to get an interest rate in the neighborhood of 2%, it's not a bad alternative to bonds as long as you understand those trade-offs. Now, what about GICs? As most listeners will know, guaranteed investment certificates are available with terms from one to five years, and like bonds, they pay a fixed interest rate annually. Uh, GICs can be an excellent alternative to bonds in a long-term portfolio, but it's probably more accurate to say they can be a complement to bonds because in many cases it makes sense to hold both. So let's go over the benefits of GICs and then consider their limitations. The first benefit is higher yields. Today, the yield on a five-year federal bond is a little over 1%, whereas you can find five-year GICs paying over 2%. Now, normally higher yield means higher credit risk, but not so in this case. GICs are guaranteed by the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation, or CDIC, for up to $100,000, which in theory makes them as safe as a Government of Canada bond. GIC's also offer some behavioral benefits. Now we've talked about how confusing bond pricing can be and how investors can think they're losing money even when they're not. Well, GIC's don't have that problem. If you buy a compound GIC, which means that all of the interest payments will be reinvested automatically, you will watch its value grow steadily. It will never fall in price regardless of any changes in prevailing interest rates. Now, This is something of an illusion. I mean, GICs are not priced every day the way bonds are because you can't sell a GIC before maturity. If you could, then its price would actually move up and down with changes in interest rates just like a bond. But if we put that aside, the fact is many investors just find it comforting to see their fixed income investments move only in one direction, and that's up. GICs are also very predictable, which makes them a good choice for investors who need a specific amount of money on a known future date. So let's say that you want to draw $30,000 annually from your retirement portfolio to meet your cash flow needs. What you could do here is build a ladder. So that means you would buy a GIC with a maturity of one, two, three, four, and five years, with each of those GICs holding $30,000. So that means each year one GIC will mature and provide you with the $30,000 you need plus a little interest as well. Now what you've done is you've guaranteed a reliable cash flow for at least five years regardless of what happens in the stock and bond markets. Bond ETFs or any bond fund on the other hand has no maturity date so its return over any given period can't be known in advance. Finally, in non-registered accounts, GICs are a better choice than traditional bond ETFs because they're more tax efficient. Now the reason for this is quite technical, so rather than going into it here, I'm going to include some helpful links on my blog explaining why this is. So those are the advantages of GICs over bond index funds and ETFs, but there are also a few downsides that you need to be aware of. So the first one, most important, GICs are not liquid, which means that you have to hold them to maturity. If you buy a five-year GIC and you need the money in two or three years, you're out of luck. But bond funds, by contrast, can be sold at any time. So this makes them much more suitable for investors who might need to dip into their investments to meet an unexpected expense or simply to rebalance their portfolio. Uh, Another area where bond funds win over GICs is in the availability to buy or sell them in any amount. Most brokerages have a minimum purchase uh, amount for GICs. Now this might only be $1,000 or so, but sometimes you'll see brokerages that don't sell GICs except in amounts of at least $5,000. Whereas bond funds are available at any time in any amount. Um, And if you use a bond mutual fund as opposed to a bond ETF, you can even do something like setting up automatic contributions with small amounts every month. That's something that's just not possible with a GIC. Bond ETFs also allow you to go out a little longer than five years in maturity, right? GICs are only available up to five years, but a broad market bond index fund has an average maturity of close to 10 years. So this leads to a little bit more volatility, but it can also deliver higher long-term returns and more diversification in a balanced portfolio. So to sum all this up, cash, GICs, and bond ETFs, they can all play a useful role in a portfolio. Cash is ideal for short and medium-term needs. And if you're able to get a decent rate from an online bank or credit union, you're not giving really up much uh, compared with bonds at all. But for longer-term portfolios, I'd suggest a combination of GICs and bond ETFs to provide a balance between higher yields, price stability, liquidity, and diversification.
1: Good stuff. Here's our last question of the day. What about other alternatives to bonds? If you're looking for income, real estate investment trust and preferred shares have much higher yields than bonds. Why not substitute these instead?
0: There was a time when the role of bonds in a portfolio was to produce a reliable stream of income. And back when 10-year bonds were yielding, say, 6 or 7%, investors could set up a ladder of bonds and probably live comfortably off that income without ever touching the principal. Unfortunately, those days are over, Uh, with interest rates so low, it just doesn't make sense anymore to see their role as income generation. Bonds and GSEs are now in your portfolio, primarily to reduce volatility and preserve capital. So with that in mind, it absolutely does not make sense to substitute investments such as real estate investment trusts, REITs as they're called, or preferred shares as alternative to bonds, although many investors use them in this way. It is true that like bonds, these securities can provide some regular income uh, and that income is certainly higher than what most bonds are yielding these days. But that's where the similarities end. REITs and preferred shares have completely different risk profiles compared with bonds. So if the role of bonds is to reduce volatility and preserve capital, as we've said, REITs and preferred shares cannot be expected to accomplish either of those goals. Let's start with REITs, which are companies that hold real estate holdings such as shopping malls, commercial buildings, hotels, retirement homes, condominiums, and so on. These companies are structured so that they pass on the vast majority of their rental income to their investors and they often yield 4% or 5%, sometimes even more. The problem is that REITs are just a specific kind of stock. So during periods when stocks crash, REITs usually plummet right along with them. During the 2008-09 financial crisis, while bonds spiked in value and they helped reduce losses for investors with balanced portfolios, REITs got pummeled as well and they lost about 50% in, in the worst six or seven months. Now preferred shares are kind of hybrid security, they have some characteristics of both stocks and bonds, right, so like stocks they pay dividends rather than interest. But like bonds, the payment is fixed, so that income is more reliable than dividends from common stocks. Now, preferreds are often held up as an alternative to bonds, especially in taxable accounts, because their dividends are taxed more favorably than the interest from bonds. But again, the problem here is that preferred shares just don't offer the same diversification benefit that bonds do. I mean, we know that bonds will always rise in value when interest rates fall, and vice versa. But preferred shares are not nearly so predictable, and during many periods, they fall sharply when bonds perform well. So I want to stress there's nothing specifically wrong with REITs or preferred shares. Both of them can be part of a complete breakfast, but neither one of them is a substitute for bonds in a balanced portfolio. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. I hope I've helped you understand bonds a little bit better and I hope you're now better able to make some good decisions when it comes to your own portfolio. As I said at the top of the episode, I'll be presenting these ideas in more detail over on my blog, so drop by canadiancouchpotato.com for detailed articles about bonds, ETFs, and everything else you need to know to become a successful index investor. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Tim Nash, who is a specialist in socially responsible investing or SRI. More and more investors, especially younger ones, are interested in how they can meet their investment goals while supporting their environmental and social values. So we're going to talk to Tim about whether this is compatible with the couch potato strategy. Until then, a big shout out to everyone who makes this podcast possible. Nick Jaworski, Amanda DL, Tara Hunt, Nicole Pomeroy, and all my colleagues at PWL Capital who help keep the lights on. A big thanks to you all. We'll see you next time.